We are returning to Luke chapter 2 this morning. Uh, I pointed out last week that Luke, from his very introduction, deals with the historical truth of what he writes in this gospel. He says there in in chapter 1, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in orderly sequence, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty about the things that you have been taught. So as I said last week, if, if what Luke was actually writing was a mythology or a fable, then he's not well-intentioned. He's a liar. He says in the, in the beginning of the gospel, these are factual events. They actually took place. They're eyewitnesses. I have investigated those things. They happened. They're the kinds of things that you can write down in an orderly way, in a, in a chronological sequence. As we get into chapter 2, we come to the birth of the Lord Jesus, and everything there is happening according to plan. So he begins, Now it happened that in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus for a census to be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was going to be registered for the census, each to his own city. We don't know why Augustus planned this census. There's some thought that it was for the sake of taxes. That kind of makes sense. Um, the, uh, the, the order went out to all the various possessions of the Roman Empire, and it's most likely that he led, uh, left each, each ruler of, of those areas to figure out a way to do that. So that brings us to Herod the Great, who decides that the best way to get a census is to have every man go to the city of his ancestry. Not the city of his birth, but the city of his ancestry. That's pretty much insane, because it means that tens of thousands of, of men have to hit the road to go back to those places to be registered. I I heard yesterday that 3,000 flights had been canceled yesterday because of all the weather, all the snow. This morning I was reading a a blog post by a pastor. His daughter and her husband had had come for an early Christmas. They were intending to fly out on uh, on Thursday or Friday and uh, couldn't get out because the flight was canceled. The, the soonest flight that they can get out is the 28th. But, you know, they can't have their luggage because they checked their luggage. They actually sat on the plane until the pilot timed out, and then they had to get off the plane, and they couldn't get another, and then everything falls apart. Okay, where's our luggage? Well, you can't have your luggage. It's already been checked. So what Herod, what Herod does, what happens during the census is something very similar. It's... It's just kind of a power play. Everybody's got to go into their own places. But that, that sets up the, uh, the eventualities that, that we see take place. The census is not a coincidence. God didn't look forward in history and decide in Micah 5.2 his son would be born in Bethlehem because it would fit in with what Augustus would say. 
We see in Proverbs 21, 1, that the king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of Yahweh. He turns it wherever he pleases. So he had determined that his son would be called a Nazarene, but that he would be born in Bethlehem. And he governed all of these things in order to bring that about. Augustus made a free choice. He wasn't a robot. He wasn't a puppet. But that free choice was fully governed by his creator. We see a very similar thing happen at the end of Jesus' earthly life. He stands before Pontius Pilate during his trials. Pilate has been asking him questions, and Jesus had been silent. Pilate said, "You, you don't speak to me? Don't you know that I have the power, I have the authority to release you, and I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus says, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. And what happened there, the early church recognized, was according to the sovereign purpose of God. After they had been uh, warned not to preach in the name of Jesus and they had been beaten, they pray this in, in their prayer at the end of Acts 4. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So Jesus' birth, Jesus' death, everything about his life had been purposed by God, had been predestined by God. It wasn't just Jesus' life, it was everything that had happened since the moment of creation. Everything that happens today is according to his sovereign purpose. What's the point of the predetermined plan of God? Why is Caesar like water in God's hand to order a census of the Roman Empire at the time? Well, for the same reason that Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel were foreordained and, and, and predetermined by God to do what they did to Jesus. It's, it's in order that God would magnify his glory by the salvation of sinners. That it was not dependent on random occurrence. It didn't happen because of accident or because of coincidence. God brought it all about very, very carefully. So the census was according to plan. And that census according to plan brings about a journey according to plan. Joseph went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David in order to register along with Mary, who was betrothed to him and was with child. Again, men were not required to return to the town of their birth, but the town of their ancestry. That means that thousands, tens of thousands, would have been traveling during a period of time. Now, I, I don't think that the, the, the command by Augustus was that everybody register on the same day. They're simply fulfilling it. There's, there's time in there, but many people are still active. I think that it would probably be likely that many men didn't take their families. It would be disruptive to everybody. It would be hard to travel. It wasn't required that they take the families along. But Joseph is betrothed to Mary. She's with child. He's not going to leave her behind. The census according to plan brings about a journey according to plan, which sets up the birth according to plan. Verse 6 says, Now it happened that while they were there, while they were in Bethlehem, the days were fulfilled for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the guest room. 
The mental picture that people often have is that Mary was right on the verge of giving birth during the journey. And in fact, Roman Catholic tradition is that they didn't make it. They were kind of like somebody else who didn't quite make it to the hospital. And uh, the the idea is that then they stopped and Mary went into a cave and Joseph continued on to Bethlehem and came back with a midwife. That's in, I think, the infancy gospel of James tells that story. Well, what, what verse 6 says is that it happened that while they were there, the days were fulfilled for her to give birth. So she was not in labor on the journey. She was not in danger of giving birth on the journey while they were there, whether they were there for four days or four weeks, we don't know. She gives birth. There was no room in the guest room. There's no place for them in the guest room. There's no place for them in the inn. That's been a... A topic of discussion over recent years. It wasn't an inn, it was a guest room, and it was this, it was that. The Greek word is kataluma, and it's got a range of meaning. It could have been an inn like a hotel, although they didn't have a lot of them. And small towns probably wouldn't have had any of them. Every home, most homes, had a a guest room. The same name was used. Whatever it was, Mary and Joseph and the baby or Mary and Joseph, rather, are living in a, in a courtyard. Houses at the time would have been somewhat U-shaped. The rooms would have been U-shaped, and in the middle was an open courtyard, and the part of the courtyard closest to the building would have been covered with something like a lean-to or a shelter, and that's where the animals were. They kept their animals close by them. There's enough people in, the, in Bethlehem that there's simply no room for Joseph and Mary to occupy, and so they're staying under shelter where the animals live. And when the baby is born, she wraps him in swaddling cloths, torn from her own clothes, and lays him in the manger because there's no place for them in the guest room. Women give birth all the time. And it was the common thing, especially for poor women, to simply tear strips of cloth from their own garments and wrap the baby for its first clothing. That's not unusual. Being laid in a manger is, is unusual. I'd pointed out a week or two ago, and, and I don't know that it has any great significance, but it caught my eye that a, a manger would have been carved out of stone. It would have been four or five feet long, perhaps. It would have been about 25 or 30 inches square with a, a, an opening carved in it. And Jesus was laid in there on the straw, wrapped up, safe from the animals, warm, But going back into the book of Exodus, when Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the law, God gives him instructions for building the ark, a chest, to hold the law. The ark of the covenant is the ark of the testimony. It's the the chest for the word of God. It's a a Bible cover, in a sense. And in my my opinion, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark did a pretty good job at reproducing what it would have been like, the size of it and, and how it looked. But it essentially was a box in which the scriptures were kept safe, in which the word word of God was preserved. I just find it intriguing that the word became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, and he was laid in a a box about the same size as the Ark of the Covenant. With angels in the skies overhead. And angels overhead, perhaps. So the... The the census is according to plan. The journey is according to plan. The birth is according to plan. What's the plan? The shepherds are the first to hear. Verse 8, 
In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened, which is a, a, a historical detail that says this is true. People didn't see angels back then and walk away. People didn't see angels and yawn or clap with happiness. People saw angels reflecting the holiness of God and were terrified. We see it all through the Old Testament. We see people in the New Testament exposed to the holiness of God in some manifestation or another and being frightened, being terrified. And so this is very consistent with what we know historically is true. And an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were terribly frightened, but the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Let's talk about these terms. The angel comes to bring good news. Good news, uh, in, in English we would use the word gospel. Gospel goes back to, uh, modern English goes back to the old English phrase, God spell. So if you've ever heard of the musical God spell, that's the old English version of it. So gospel literally is the gospel. The angel used the word euangelion, euangeliozo, which is the, the phrase to evangelize. We get evangelism from that. He brings good news. The good news is good news of great joy. Now, joy by itself is a superlative word. The Oxford English Dictionary defines joy as a vivid emotion of pleasure arising from a sense of well-being or satisfaction, the feeling or state of being highly pleased or delighted, exultation of spirit, gladness, delight. You can't have a little joy. You can't have a little joy. You can't be a little dead. You can't be a little pregnant. You can't have a little joy. The word by itself implies a fullness. But he adds a modifier to it. That it's a great joy. It's magnified joy. It's intensified joy. It's the best joy anybody will ever discover. It's the best thing there is. There's never been joy like this on earth. There's been, never been news this good on earth. So it's good news of great joy, and it's for all the people. So it's without distinction. It's not just for the shepherds. It's for fishermen. It's for tailors. It's for farmers and olive growers. It's for men and women and children. It's for kings and peasants. It's for Jews and Gentiles. It's good news of great joy for all the people without distinction. Nobody is held back from this joy because of who they are. And that's because nobody has access to the joy uniquely because of who they are. So there's good news of great joy for all the people. What is the news? The news is that a Savior has been born. And this is where it falls apart for many people. This is where the, the train comes off the tracks. See, for some, the idea of a Savior brings hope. And for some, the idea of a Savior is an insurmountable problem. And that's because the word Savior implies at least two things. It implies that there's something that we have to be saved from. 
The people of our world simply don't want to think that there's anything that they need to say, be saved from. The second thing that Savior implies is we can't save ourselves. We simply can't save ourselves. I've been using an illustration doing jail ministry the last couple of months. You have, to be, you have to be clear. You have to be concise. It's a limited amount of time. And, and so I've kind of come up with an illustration for our helplessness. And it would work here, too. If you can reach behind yourself, grab yourself by the scruff of the neck, and lift yourself off the ground, then you don't need a savior. You can help yourself. But if you can't lift yourself off the ground, you need a savior. See, there are things that we simply can't do. There are things that we're unable to do. And saving ourselves is one of those things. In Scripture, spiritual salvation always, always means deliverance from the, the judgment of God. It's not deliverance from people. It's not deliverance from slavery or poverty. It's not deliverance from oppression or rulers. It's deliverance from God's righteous judgment on us. The moment Adam sinned, he was condemned to hell. He faced both temporal judgment and eternal judgment. And part of God's temporal judgment on sinners is lifting his restraining hand and giving them freedom to sin even more. Romans 1 deals with this. Three times it says in Romans 1 that God gave men and women over to their sinful nature because they refused to honor him as God and worship him as God. So he gives them over to dishonor, uh, gives them over to impurity, uh, he gives them over to dishonorable passions, which then is explained to be homosexuality. And then he gives them over to unfit minds to do the things that are not proper. And here are the things that are not proper. All unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice, gossip, slander, hating God, violence, arrogance, boastfulness, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. It's not saying everybody given over does all of those things. Those things come from God lifting his restraining hand. Why would God lift his restraining hand? It's because people say, I don't want you as my God. You have no business interfering in my life. You have no right to interfere in my life. And God says, okay, I'll let you go. I'll let you do what your sinful nature wants to do. But that sinful nature can only incur more and more judgment. Never less. Never less. So there's good news of great joy, which is for all the people that today a Savior has been born. What does he save us from? He saves us from the judgment of God. He saves us from the judgment of God. Our sinful nature makes us enemies. And when we don't know what God requires, we violate his law. In ignorance, when we do know what he requires, we violate it in spite of the threat of judgment. That we all know is there because our conscience, fractured as it is, still functions. The Savior was born. God took on human flesh as a human being, conceived in Mary's womb by the power of the Holy Spirit, and born as, a, as an infant, helpless needing to be clothed, needing to be kept warm, needing to be cared for. If that Savior is Christ, the Hebrew word is Messiah, both words mean anointed or ordained. That doesn't mean that he's anointed by us. It doesn't mean he's ordained by us. It means he's anointed and ordained by God the Father. 
I used this again Thursday night in jail ministry. Just about everybody I was sitting with at the table that night had had public defenders. They don't get to choose a public defender. One is assigned for them. He's chosen for them. And occasionally uh, an accused person insists on defending themselves. It never goes well. Well, Jesus Christ is, is God's chosen anointed defender and savior. He's the one God has assigned for us and to us. He's Christ and he is Lord. To be Lord is to be God. The word Lord, kurios, in Greek is used, uh, used well over 750 times in the New Testament. The, vo- the vast majority of them refer to God and Jesus. A few dozen times the word is used as sir, just as a courtesy. And there are times and stories where it's used to refer to the master of a slave or a superior. But when the scripture speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not just using it as sir. And it's not saying that he's the master in some parable. It's under, underlining the fact and emphasizing the fact that Jesus is God in human flesh. So let's, let's bring this home. Jesus didn't come to be our helper. I'm sorry, Jesus did, did come to be our helper. He didn't come to be our friend. He didn't come to be a sidekick. He didn't come to be a fan. He didn't come to affirm our sinful desires. He came to save us. Most people don't want that to be true. We want to be okay without a Savior. We want to believe that at the end, God is going to have a day of judgment, and on that day of judgment, our good works are going to be measured against our bad works. For many people, they think of the the seesaw, the, the scale thing, the good works. Do good works outweigh the bad works? Some of them just go purely by number. Do you have more good works than bad works? What Scripture says is all have sinned. That's already done and have fallen short of the glory of God. So in our very conception, we're already born with the sin nature. That final judgment is not to determine whether we're guilty. The final judgment is to pass sentence on those who are guilty. We don't want there to be sin. We only want mistakes and accidents and I didn't mean it and I couldn't help it. There's more than that. All mankind is under the judgment of God. Jesus came to bear the judgment of God against sinners. He came to satisfy God's wrath on his cross and provide forgiveness and new birth for those who trust in him. This isn't contrary to the will of God, as though uh, Jesus found a loophole God didn't expect. This is why he came. That's why that day the angels could, could say to the shepherds, there has been born this day for you in the city of David a savior. And that Savior is God's anointed one for this purpose. He sent him for this. And he's Lord. He is the Son of God. He is God in human flesh. That's the good news of great joy for all the people without distinction. Jews and Gentiles, men and women, slave and free, rich and poor, And it's wonderful news because all people without distinction are sinners. We have a gift. We have a gift. Believing in Jesus as Savior means accepting your own 
helpless guilt before God and trusting that Jesus and only Jesus can save you. Following him as Lord means repenting of sin and turning to him for eternal life. We don't believe perfectly. We don't follow perfectly. Perfection doesn't come into it. Repentance comes into it. Salvation doesn't come to us passively. We must believe in Jesus as Savior, which brings about justification where he declares us to be righteous. It brings about regeneration where we are born again as children of God, as Pastor Justin was saying. It brings about adoption. We are brought into God's family for the first time. Over the past couple of weeks in speaking to people in different circumstances, I've heard a few talk about the, the, the infancy narratives in Scripture as being for children or they're for Christmas. And that they're, really, they're, they're really kind of, of light, Scripture light. They don't really contribute. There's a vast depth of theological truth in these narratives that are there for our instruction and there for an encouragement. So for those of us who know Jesus as Lord, today is a, is a, a blessed day. The two best Sundays of the year are when Christmas is on a Sunday and Easter Sunday because they wrap up everything that Jesus came to do. He took on human flesh so that he could take on a human death, rise from the dead, Father, we give you thanks for this good news of great joy. It's the best gift anybody could ever receive. We can't give it. Those of us who know you can tell others that the gift has been given. We have a peace that nobody else can have. We're not constantly scrambling for different points of, of view and different points of meaning. We find ourselves anchored in you. And for that, we give you thanks. We all know people, friends and relatives who don't know you. And we grieve for that. We ask that you would touch them, that by your spirit you would bring uh, both conviction of sin and the confidence that there is a Savior, Jesus Christ. Grant them the faith to believe. Grant them new life, forgiveness of sin, a true peace, that they would know this great joy that, that we are beginning to explore. We thank you for all of these things in Jesus' precious name, and we thank you for this day. And in his name we pray. Amen.